It's that time of the year where the books from last year are closed out and we get the numbers back from our bookkeeper or sort them out ourselves in QuickBooks. We take a look at that profit, that bottom line number, and many contractors go, holy cow, I busted my ass last year and that's all the money I made. There have been years where that has rolled off my tongue. So I wanted to talk about where to look for improving cash flow and the bottom line. Now, that said, I know that when business owners feel that profit isn't as good as it should be, 99.9% .9 of them look at the income statement and start going line item by line item, trying to figure out where they could save a few pennies. But that approach, going line item by line item, is just going to save a few pennies, an immaterial amount. We'll come back to that a little bit later in this episode. First and foremost, if you really want to move the needle on your bottom line, you need to look to the labor efficiency rate. This is the number one KPI, the number one driver of profit, the number one driver of success that I have found in any trades business, the labor efficiency rate. And this is a measure of how efficient your labor is being used to generate revenue or complete the work. And it's really easy to calculate. You take the total number or the total number, the total amount of work completed and divide that by your labor cost that's going in to earn that actual revenue. Your direct labor in accounting terms is what we would call that. So if you've got, let's just say, a million dollars worth of work completed, and mind you, it is very important to look at this from the perspective of work completed, but not cash brought in. This is going to be a little bit of a tangent, uh, but if you're not already familiar with this, these terms, there's cash basis accounting and there's accrual basis accounting. Many of us pay taxes and do the books on a cash basis, meaning how much did how much cash came in and you know what did we what did we spend behind it but when you're looking at the labor efficiency rate it's very important that you don't look at the cash that came in you want to look at the actual revenue earned or the actual amount of work completed which may vary or will vary from the cash that you brought in but if you get this right the cash that flows in behind it uh, assuming you get this right and pair it with solid deposit in collection schedule, which I'm going to talk about, the cash that flows in from the labor efficiency rate will, uh, will, be, will be very good. It'll be a healthy number. So take the amount of work completed, the amount of work that you actually completed, revenue earned in accounting terms, and divide that by the amount of labor that you used to earn it. So uh, the actual labor, your payroll cost for labor, if you've got an operations manager or assistant operations manager, you should include that in there as well. You kind of have to look at everybody's role by role and say, hey, are these people more on the side of completing work or are they on the administrative side of things? Look at just the labor that you are using to complete projects and take that, take that work completed number, divide that by the amount of labor. You should, for a healthy business, you should at least target having a labor efficiency rate of three, meaning for every dollar of labor that you spend, you complete three times that in work. Labor is only one third of work completed. That I find is a good target for any residential service contracting business or residential remodeling business. It may vary, or I shouldn't say it may, but it will vary if you're in the commercial space 
or you're in a business that has extremely high material costs. Like I've heard of some pool companies that do high-tech pool automation and high-tech pool equipment. In those businesses, the amount of materials that they are using are, you know, like 75 to 80% of the revenue. So uh, they're really in it for that. It's not going to apply there. But if you're a residential service contractor or doing residential remodeling, kitchens, bath, uh, if you're an AC contractor, electrical contractor, that labor efficiency rate, you should target it to be at three. When you get below it, when you start getting down to round two, you will have cash flow problems. Any residential service contractor or light remodeling company, if that labor efficiency rate gets down to two or below, you are going to have cash flow rates. A very healthy labor efficiency rate would be three or even higher is not unrealistic. Uh, I would say three would be healthy, but beyond three would be extremely, extremely efficient. So you need to know your labor efficiency rate and track that. And on an annual basis, target it to be a labor efficiency rate of three. You know, if you are not reaching that labor efficiency rate or you're not running your labor efficiency, you're going to run into cash flow issues. And I say this because so many people, when they look to improve that bottom line profit number, they start going for things like coffee, office supplies, how much did we spend on uniforms, what is the internet bill for the office, stuff like that. That stuff is all minuscule. It is freaking peanuts in relation to the amount of money that you actually spend on labor. Uh, in any business, in any trades business, your labor is going to be probably your biggest expense on the balance sheet, if not in some cases, materials might get up there with it. But largely in most trades businesses, it will be labor. This is the biggest factor behind your profitability. That is why I prioritize the labor efficiency rate and make it the number one thing that I speak about and convey in terms of information and what you should look to do to improve your cash flow, improve that labor efficiency rate. But it is also the first number that I will look to in my own business. Think about this, right? Let's just say that, uh, I don't know, let's take my company, for example, we spend $2,000 a month on cell phone. Maybe we go and negotiate with the cell phone service provider or switch cell phone companies, which is, mind you, is going to have a huge switchover cost to do that. And we reduce the bill from $2,000 a month to, I don't know, go down 25% to 1500 Maybe we'll say, Let's just say we reduce it down to $1,000 a month. We cut our cell phone bill by 50%. Okay, so we saved $1,000 a month there. Let's flip it back and look at that in labor. Let's just say we get our labor running more efficient and we avoid having one trip out to a job. We send one truck, one trip, or we send one truck on one trip out to a job site and they don't have all the materials that they need. So now the guys have to run back to the shop, pick up the materials and go back out to the job site. That little run right there, which is going to kill productivity for the day, uh, the guys are probably going to be crushed or lose their incentive for a completion bonus or whatever bonus we've got tied to their production. They're going to lose that incentive. So now the whole job's going to take longer. Uh, and you've also got that customer that's going to be slightly unhappy that the guys were not organized and ready for the job. You know, so you've got all these factors on time on top of the fact that the guys 
you know, had to leave the job site for two to three hours. Mind you, you know, I, I say that my guys cannot get into the car for less than an hour. No matter where they're going, it will be an hour because they'll have to stop for gas. They'll have to, you know, stop for lunch. They'll have to use the restroom, etc. It's a real kill to the momentum when the guys have to get into the car and drive back to the facility because they weren't prepared. That cost, once you factor in everything, the value of what the customer sees us being unorganized, the fact that the guys are, you know, essentially losing a day of labor here because they don't have all the material there. It's really just going to kill their momentum. So they're going to prolong the project. They're not going to do it intentionally, but subconsciously, they know that they're probably going to lose their productivity bonus. Or if, if we work with them, which we do in our make case, we, we extend it. Uh, in that case, we're going to budget an extra day for the project. We're losing that and the opportunity cost that we could have serving another customer. And then the actual time of them running around in the vehicle. So you got the wear and tear on the vehicle, but then you've got the direct labor cost, which is the hourly rate of the employee plus payroll taxes plus workers compensation. You know, so the, the direct cost of labor can easily be $100 or two there. Just one day like that adds up to the $1,000 that we could save under the hypothetical scenario of reducing our phone bill. And these little inefficiencies and these problems uh, with guys not having the right materials when they go out to the job are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly common. Or lowering your callbacks, because callbacks also take time. Now you got to send somebody else out there with materials and go through it with the customer. It's much more efficient if you focus on getting the guys out to the job prepared and getting them completing the jobs efficiently so there are no callbacks than it is trying to negotiate uh, your overhead expenses downward or trying to navigate them downward. That's the power of the labor efficiency rate. And, you know, as I've made it very clear here, you have to have that labor efficiency rate in a healthy range to really make your business tick and produce a bottom line number. Most everything else on the income statement will be immaterial relative to the amount that you spend on labor. So you need to have it running efficiently. Next up, estimating. Here's the thing. When it comes to estimating, many contractors out there are either pricing too low just because they feel like they can't get jobs if they're not pricing higher or b they're pricing incorrectly so let's address the first point up front uh, it is always best to build a premium brand image and be a premium service provider and charge what you need to for that service irregardless of what some little chuck in a truck is right so you need to keep that in mind but you also need to price accordingly and price yourself to be a premium service provider and to make a profit. So this gets us into talking about margin. And I do need to specify and clarify here, there's a difference between markup and margin. So take the following example. Uh, and I see this come up a lot of times when contractors are talking about numbers. And I shouldn't say contractors. This applies to business owners across the board and furthermore to employees that are doing estimating because it might not be your own problem. It might be your own employees that are not educated when it comes to these numbers. There's a difference between markup and margin. Markup, and mind you, I speak in terms of margin because that's what comes to the bottom line. That's what is your profit, not the markup. Markup is not your profit. Margin is your profit or your gross profit at least. 
Uh, margin, when, let's just say we want to have a 45% margin. What, I, what I'll see a lot of people do is they will take the number, their cost, so they'll know that the cost of labor materials is, in simple round numbers, $100. And they'll say, oh, 45% margin, $100 times 1.45. That equals $145. Therefore, $145 is my selling price to reach a 45% margin. No, you don't have a 45% margin at $145. You do not have a 45% margin when you consider those numbers. To calculate a 45% margin on that, what you need to do is you need to divide $100, your cost, by $100 minus your intended margin. So if we're trying to get a 45% margin, we're going to say 1 minus 4, 0.45, 45% is 0.55%. So we need to divide 100 by 0.55. And if we do that, I'm going to do that out of my calculator right now. You would see that the price to reach that 45% margin is $181.82. So if you're trying to reach a, a margin of 45% and you're just doing the markup or your employees and your staff and estimating are just doing that cost times 1.45, you are going to be, uh, well, you're going to be wildly out of business and wildly underestimating the actual amount that you need to charge. So that's a huge number there, and it, it scales, obviously. We're just talking here on $100, but if we did this at scale on a $10,000 project, you're coming in at $3,500, $3,700 under what you need to be reaching. These mistakes will really, really set you back. So you need to make sure that you understand your numbers and that you're estimating correctly. And from this, you need to understand your break-even point. So I didn't plan on talking about break-even point. But break-even point is essentially going to say, okay, these are all the costs that we've got to keep the lights on. This is how much the uh, rent is on the building. This is how much our utility is. This is how much we need to have an admin, right? We need to have three people on the phones at all times because, well, you really need to have two people on the phones at all times, but you know that one person is sick or one person needs to leave the office and run an errand. So you have to have three full-time admin people uh, three full-time CSRs, admin CSRs, on staff, how much is it going to cost for them each year? And on an annual basis, that's a few hundred thousand dollars. Now, we need to you know, take a look at our margin and say, okay, well, we need to achieve this margin uh, to reach this profitability. So you can add your profit to your overhead and then divide that by the margin. Are you following me on that? So if you've got 300,000 of, of overhead, and I look at this a little bit differently than they would teach you in accounting terms because your admin staff, your CSRs would not be fixed overhead in accounting terms because hypothetically you could cut your admin or your CSRs and then rehire them later. But in reality, we all know that's not true. It's hard to find and retain good help and you got to train them. So I call them fixed overhead. You have $300,000 right there. You want to profit $300,000. Well, now you need to base your break-even point of $600,000 and figure out what margin you're going to be aiming for, what margin is realistic in your industry, Divide that overhead by that number to get the actual sales price. So if you are going to be, you know, carrying, say you have that 300 overhead plus your $300,000 in profit, 
and you can sell your projects with a 50% gross profit margin, all right? Well, then you divide that 600 by 0.5. Now it's 1.2 million that you need to sell to actually make the $300,000. So look at those numbers and understand them and make sure that you're pricing correctly and make sure that your staff is pricing correctly. As a rule of thumb, uh, I always like to say, take your labor or materials, whichever one is higher, and multiply that by three. Okay, so if you are in a business, you know, and uh, labor is more than, you generally spend more on labor than materials, figure out how much labor is going to cost you for a project, multiply it by three. That can always serve as a really quick checkpoint in your estimating and in your pricing. And on the flip side of that, if you're in a business where maybe materials is higher than labor, you might want to take the materials multiply that by three, and that can get you to the number. Um, you know, the, these numbers do not apply broadly across everything. These are just typical rules of thumb. So you'll need to analyze your numbers and try to figure out a rule of thumb and use that to make sure that you're pricing correctly. Because I know in some businesses, or not in some, but most, particularly in service contracting businesses, job costing is simply not feasible. You know, if you've got a bunch of techs and you're seeing 30 customers a day, it is not feasible to do a job cost analysis on every one of those. So you got to set up these rules of thumb and find out what works for your business. In my business, labor times three works really good. The other thing that we can do is set a target revenue uh, per day. So how much labor are you spending per day? What's your typical spend on an employee? Take his cost, and that's fully burdened labor cost, uh, and multiply that by three. That's another good rule of thumb as well. Big thing though, make sure you understand that markup versus margin, because I see that gets a lot of contractors. Uh, if you don't understand it, feel free to go into our Facebook group, the Contractor Momentum Facebook group, also named the Home Pro Marketing and Sales Lounge. Drop a new thread in there. I'll be happy to talk you guys through it. Next up, moving along, we're getting into real cash flow here, actual money changing hands, deposits and collections. Make sure that you are collecting on the money and possibly taking deposits. If it is a project where you need to order custom materials for, you need to be taking enough money to cover that material on the front end, right? You do not want to assume the risk of the customer changing their mind on materials and backing out of the project. That is not your risk to take as a contractor. So if you are special ordering materials that cannot be returned and cannot be used anywhere else, you definitely need to take a deposit to cover that money. Like it's just non-negotiable. So you need to make sure that happens. You can't be losing out to customers changing their mind and that's not your risk to take. With that, deposits need to be used or can be used as a sales tool. So I know some companies, and we do this too, go down to a really, really low deposit. Now, I don't advocate going to no deposit unless you really know your numbers. You really know your numbers and you're using it as a sales tool and you can come out swinging with, hey, you know what? We do this project. We don't even require a deposit. Pay when you're happy. It's called risk reversal, right? Customer has no risk when they're in there. And there was one company, or not one company, but one guy who owns a company that I had on the podcast a while back. Uh, let's see here. His name was Bob Bird, owns Bird Insulation, a company in the Atlanta, North Georgia area, 
right? And he spoke largely about this and highly. He takes no deposits. And one of the reasons why that works for his business is the material that he is using is basically a commodity. He's using insulation material. So he buys it for that project. And if somebody changes their mind, well, number one, there's really not a big variance in material. But because of that, he can reuse it on another project. So, you know, that works for him. And that's a great sales tool if you're in an industry or have a scope of work where you can do that. But I always like to get some deposit. And on my projects, even the ones that are larger, but we're still using commoditized materials, we will say, you know what? We only require a $100 deposit. And here's why we'll do that. Like the $100 isn't really moving the needle in our bank, but that is tied to our collection process. We accept credit cards and we like getting credit cards because when they sign the contract, part of the, um, you know, part of the, uh, how should I say, the terms authorizes us to charge the credit card on completion. And before you go out there and do this, let me uh, let me preface this or disclose that I'm not an attorney. And if you're going to do this, you should have an attorney run through the terms of your contract and collection regarding credit cards to make sure that you're within compliance with the laws. But how we found to do it in our business and it works for us is we have the proper terms in there that authorize us to charge the credit card on completion of the project. So we get the $100 deposit that goes on the credit card. Now, when the project is complete a few weeks later, boom, we charge that credit card. So we're taking that minimal deposit of $100, which is still a good selling tool at this point. You know, your project is, uh, these ones oftentimes are 3000 to $10,000, maybe even larger. Yep, we're just going to require a $100 deposit to show that you're serious about it and get you on the schedule and block off that time slot. Customer's like, all right, no problem. That's less than 25 or 30% that other people are charging. Boom, here we go. We'll put it on the credit card. Then they sign off for the authorization to charge that credit card on completion. So now we don't have to worry about collecting it. That's what we're doing there. And credit cards are a very powerful tool for this. Uh, they're the only tool for this. But they're, they're very powerful for the collection process because they take away the pain of paying and subsequently get you paid faster when you complete the project. So think about this. I know this has happened to everybody. You complete a project and it's done well, but then the customer calls you back and like, well, you know, before I pay you, I want you to come back out here and look at this. Uh, before I pay you, I want you or I want you to do that. Or I think that this should have been included in your project. And they bring this up because there's a pain that comes with actually making the payment. We all do this. We all know about this in our own daily lives. When you actually have to pay for something, it is a little painful. You generally want to delay it. And the customers feel that they can delay it or they feel that they can get more for their money by calling you back. And when you simply use the credit card as an automatic payment source, you avoid a lot of those costs. You avoid paying for, you know, the callback out there that the customer has because they want to just, you know, get a pat on their back and, you know, they want you to show face, etc. So not only with the credit card are you collecting faster, but you are avoiding that second or subsequent callback and you're avoiding the customer holding this money over your head because a lot of times or what we found is when the customers pay automatically by credit card, the callback rate, you know, to come out and look at something or to fix a minor detail is significantly lower when they're doing it 
by credit card and the credit card just gets automatically ran. So, uh, you know, that factors into the whole thing of, well, credit card fees. Credit card is going to charge you 3%, basically. You know, uh, there are some ways of getting it lower if you swipe the credit card. There's different merchant processing platforms. But by and large, you're getting around 3% to process that credit card. Well, think about how much money you're saving now because you don't have to take the time or send your crew back out there to handle these little callbacks and you're getting the cash flow faster. It is a win-win with accepting credit cards on all projects. Uh, it was something I kicked around early on in the beginning. We didn't want to accept credit cards. We accepted them for little projects, etc. Uh, now I found it is much better. We've been doing this now for several years. I'm talking when I say early on, this was 2012, 2013 that we didn't accept credit cards. Uh, several years now that we've accepted the credit cards and it has been a I don't want to say game changer, but a breadwinner by getting the authorization to collect on it as soon as the project is done. Now, that said, not everybody pays for a project by credit card or sometimes the credit card gets declined for that amount when you run it. For them, it is important to have a solid collection process in place. And what we do, what I found that works is doing an email sequence. Right. So from the time a project is completed, uh, let's just say on a Friday, we go through them Friday end of the day. We do go through all our projects. We run through open work. We make sure everything's marked complete. And then we'll bill the credit cards. We'll have one of our uh, office administrators do this, office assistants, bill the credit cards for the ones where we don't have the credit card authorization signed or the card is declined. They go into an invoicing queue and we send out one email each week notifying them of their balance and this goes on for four weeks on week three it basically says hey you've got this balance overdue at any time we may be moving forward with placing a lien on your property so this starts again before we start the project with making sure we're securing our lien rights Uh, that's something i'm not going to get into but we actively make sure that our contract is in compliance to secure the lien rights and then we're sending these emails one week one week, one week. We send them Tuesday morning. I found that is the best time to send them uh, right in the morning. So it's one of the first things that the customer gets when they wake up and check their email. We send them right at seven. And we do this using a program called Boomerang. So we schedule the emails. We've got a little template and then we just change the customer name and dollar amount. It is a bit of a tedious process and I haven't seen any CRMs doing it. I will say that it is a tedious process and it does take a few hours each week, but we'll schedule out the series of four emails at that point that are going to go out to the customer and they get progressive in tone with week three saying, Hey, Uh, If you don't pay up soon, we may move forward with placing a lien on your property at any time. And then week four basically says, hey, a lien is coming uh, at this point. So securing the lien rights. And once they see the lien in the emails, the word, most people get pretty serious about paying. But also besides from that, the the legalities, technically what you're doing is you're showing them that you've got a process of collecting. A lot of customers will avoid paying just to see what happens if they don't pay. They will avoid paying until you take action making them to pay. And this probably works for a lot of them when they're dealing with smaller businesses. They just don't take the action to finally collect. And the, the customers know this, some customers, not all, some customers know this. And they try to leverage that and see what actually happens. And by having this weekly email getting progressive in tone, they see, okay, this company isn't 
isn't um this company isn't going to forget about my balance and they've got an actual system in place for collecting so i don't want to get to the end of this process so take deposits uh make sure you cover the materials take deposits on credit card get authorization to charge the credit card on completion and have a sequence for of invoices done by email for collecting next up Material negotiations. Materials will be an item on your balance sheet and you do buy, or not on your balance sheet. Jeez, it's almost like I do not have a degree in accounting, which I do. Materials will be an item on your income statement that are material in nature, meaning they're a large amount. Don't be shy or afraid to negotiate on materials and make vendors compete for your business. All right, when you're going to do a material order, when you're going to submit an order to your vendors or a purchase order, get a bunch of uh, quotes on the project, just as your customers do to you, and say, hey, this company, this vendor says they'll do it cheaper. Can you beat this? Right? And play all those quotes against each other. A lot of people might say, well, where's the loyalty at in that? Well, let's be real here. Your customers might have a degree of loyalty to you, but there is also a price incentive. And you are buying a lot of materials from these vendors. If one wants to earn your business, they should be expected to compete on price. Uh, I know this can be difficult to do in some trades where you're selling brand name equipment. There you might not be as flexible with it, but when you've got commoditized equipment or materials or generics, or you can get the same equipment from multiple vendors, don't be shy or afraid at all to do it. I know that we do it with our material vendors, and I know that pretty much every company that's out there uh, running several million dollars a year and is on a rapid growth path is doing the same thing as well. They make a purchase order request, they get the quote from the vendor, and then they take them around and they shop them and say, hey, can you beat this? Can you do any better on this? Of course, there are some other factors like term, or not terms, but... Uh, there's some other factors like, you know, service and stuff that goes on with it. At that point, you do need to consider this level of service you get from each vendor. But as you grow, you can consider keeping more of these materials in-house. This is one thing that worked for us. We keep the stuff in-house so we get the purchase or we get the invoicing and the materials delivered well before we actually need it. And therefore, we're not relying on service from the vendors. So therefore, we can get lower pricing from vendors that might not be so superior on services. And you can also negotiate the terms. What are the terms? Is there a cash discount? How long do you have to pay it? Uh, I don't suggest waiting more than 30 days to pay it. And, you know, if you pay it by cash, see if you can pay by credit card as well and put it on a 2% cash back credit card. So those are my tips in the best places to look when you look at the bottom line and that net profit number or net income number is lower than you expected. Going forward, I suggest you make a budget, right? How much money can you earn? How much can you profit with the resources that you have? Take a look at that, map that out in Excel on an annual basis, and then start playing with the numbers. If you market and sell harder and add a crew, how much revenue can you do? And there are two good episodes where I talk about this. My episode with Gokul Pradmanaban, a business broker, he talks about that and how he makes his annual budgets each year and looks at them. And then we went a little bit further in depth on it, I think, with 
Tom Howard of Lee's Air Conditioning in a very recent episode. Both of these are pretty recent, but Gokul was first and then Tom Howard. And uh, then we'll get to this one. So, you know, Gokul, Tom Howard, both those two episodes, very good on budgeting. Listen to those and map out your budget, right? With the resources you have, what can you expect? Keep all of this stuff in mind, map out the budget, go out there, crank up next year's number, really juice up that net income bottom line. If you guys have any questions on what I covered in this episode of the Contractor Momentum Podcast, head on over to our Facebook group, look for a link somewhere around this podcast and drop a line. Otherwise, stay tuned for the next episode of the Contractor Momentum Podcast.